This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Tunnel Vision, a show brought to you by uscfootball.com. I'm your host, Jack Smith, joined in studio by RJ Abadia and remote from Shotgun Spratling. Guys, it's Arizona State week. We're Thursday. We're going to bring you guys the Arizona State game preview show. Make sure you're leaving your comments on all platforms. I believe we're only live on two platforms right now on YouTube and Twitter, but leave your comments. We'll be able to put them on the screen as we talk about USC versus Arizona State. The Trojans are back home at the Coliseum, 7.30 p.m. kickoff on Saturday night, and we've got the preview show. Guys, happy Thursday. I'm excited to be with you guys again. As we are with you, Jack, as always. (laughs) Every Thursday. We'll see. We'll see. There were some comments made before this show that uh, we won't divulge, but we're we're giving Jack another trial run here. We'll see if we can (laughs) keep him around any longer after some of these comments. You know, he's a Giants fan, guys. It's what happens, you know, with, with those Bay Area fans. Well, I mean, if if the Dodgers fans have want something to be mad about, like you're a Braves fan, so I don't I don't really know. I don't think there's very a ton of difference there, especially after last year and the past couple of years in the postseason. But we're not here to talk about baseball. We're here to talk about USC football. There's been a ton of news surrounding USC practice. Of course, we've got a lot of stuff to get into about just the Arizona State game, some of the stuff going on in the Arizona State program, and just the game this weekend at the Coliseum. Where do you guys want to start and kick it off? I say we move through this preview because I think um, the what the what of what happens on Saturday is not nearly as compelling as how USC plays on Saturday. Because I do think there are a lot of interesting aspects in that regard, way more interesting than what we all think is going to happen. So maybe we just knock that out immediately and kind of dig into what we want to see on the field for that that stretch. Yeah, what's what's interesting about this is how the, the point spread keeps going up. Um, you, you know, so no one's questioning whether USC is going to win this game. Right now, it just is becoming, you know, how much USC can win this game by because Arizona State has just shown nothing so far this season that would lend any credence to, hey, maybe they can put something together. Hey, maybe they can find that magic touch. Everything has just been worse and worse and worse as the season progressed, which is part of the reason why Herm Edwards was fired after that Eastern Michigan uh, loss that they had. You know, it looked like he got fired on the field. I mean, the place, you know, Arizona State usually – Though the games with Arizona State in basketball, in football, baseball, no matter what the records are, they just seem to like be very close matchups. They come down the wire. 
that shouldn't be the case this time. You know, USC should be able to dominate this one. So, you know, I, I think the fact that you, what we saw last weekend lends credence to, to what RJ said is it's going to be much more interesting to see, okay, how does USC bounce back from the way they play specifically on the offensive side no, going up against a, you know a dumpster fire in Arizona State that may not have a secondary. I don't, maybe they're playing, you know, maybe they got some offensive linemen they can throw out there. Maybe they got some athletic defensive ends to put at cornerback. I don't. I mean, they're they're uh, they were missing two cornerbacks against uh, Utah last week, Keon and uh, and and his brother Keon and uh, Kajon. I can't remember the the two Markham brothers. Both are missing in action right now for personal reasons. So. You got four DBs right there that they're missing out on. So if USC can't throw all over them, you know I, I don't know what to say about the USC offense attack. Uh, we'll, we'll have a lot more questions if they can't do something this week uh, on the offensive side to bounce back. Well, the spread's going up, and you mentioned it. Just, it seems like everyone thinks it's a USC lock win. I know there's one person who does. Caesar Sportsbook, uh, I think, put out a tweet today that said one better put $575,000 on USC money line, to, and he would only win $12,000 if it hits. So he's got a ton of money to throw around, but he seems pretty confident that USC um, is a lock. And I think the... The preview going up to this game lends a lot into what we said in the Fresno State game where USC needs to come out that first big home game against a, a real opponent and show that they, they're not going to be messed with in the Coliseum. USC did just that. Uh, they won convincingly over Fresno State. And so you mentioned that earlier in the past, people would come into the Coliseum thinking they might have a chance. And it just doesn't seem like that this weekend. I think that also has a lot to do with the way the Trojans handled the Fresno State game. But RJ, I think you mentioned you've got a lot of stats uh, on the Trojans and we can get into those a little bit later. What do you think, uh, starting with the Arizona State offense? I mean, it's you got to do some digging to find optimism about them on both sides of the ball. I mean, you're talking points per drive. They're in the triple. They're, you know, they're they're well at the bottom of the FBS in in what they do. Um, they are not atrocious necessarily third down defense, um, but it's not. There's just nothing in there to suggest that they're going to put USC. In comfortable in uncomfortable positions, really, and it really and, and the interesting thing is, I will say, you know, and again, Arizona State doesn't have a good running game, but I posted this, uh, I think, in the Fun Facts uh, thread this week. This is a matchup of two of the lower ranked run defenses in the conference. So, do I think Arizona State's going to be able to exploit USC the way I think USC is going to be able to exploit Arizona State in this regard? No, I do not. But I do think it matters that USC makes a stand and puts up a good showing of run defense, even though it's not against a good running team. Like at a certain point, you know, it's not about the, the arrogance of being number six or any of that. At a certain point, your standard is your standard or you're just not that kind of team, you know, and they need to get better defending the run because you can't just say to yourself, well, we'll wait till we're in Salt Lake and then suddenly we'll become a good run defensive team. So I think just in a lot of regards, it's about USC either improving standards that have not been where they should be or getting back to standards that they've had previously. And that's why I think to me, it's really compelling. Like how do they play in this game? Like I think the simplest way to say it is, you know, a player like Tuli Tui Pelotu should have zero fourth quarter snaps in this game, right? I think there's a couple guys you'd probably add to that list, but that's kind of the threshold. That's the expectation because if he is taking snaps in the fourth quarter, 
that's not good. That's not a good sign for USC in the short or the long term. I think this is also an opportunity to continue to strike fear in your opponent. You know, if you go out there and just thrash Arizona State, okay, well, who's the next opponent that comes in? What does Washington State see about that? You know, how do they look at the, you know, when they see the film of how USC is just putting it on Arizona State potentially, you know, they go, ooh, that's going to be a tough one when we go in there. You know, it's, you put some fear in your opponent before they even step into on the field. And that's something that the Pete Carroll teams were able to do so so well, whether it was the offense's ability with the quick strike or just to grind you down consistently or the defense's uh, you know, ability to put up the big hits and create the turnovers. All those things that you want to see every game, the highlight-type plays, okay, can you do that and start just continuing to build – you know, kind of your 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 resume back up as a you know as the dominant team in the Pac-12 to let everyone else in the conference know that hey, the, there's no prisoners here. You know, we're just we're slaying everybody. We're not taking any. You know, we're not keeping anybody around. No POWs here. You come in, you get butchered, you go home. You know, and that's it. We we, we don't you know have no excuses, no anything else. And that you have to do that against a team like Arizona State, and especially after the way the offense kind of struggled last week. Uh, you want to see them get back on track and just you know get that good feeling, that good vibe going back. Because when Washington State comes in next week, they can put up some points. And they've got a unique element that USC hasn't really faced so far in a dual-threat quarterback. Now, Emory Jones can run a little bit. He's not the same as Cameron Ward. Cameron Ward had a lot of escape plays uh, against Oregon. So I think this is actually probably a good precursor for USC to potentially, you know, similar to Rice and Stanford, how we thought, hey, that you know, similar styles, it'll help. You know, Emory Jones is going to take off a ton, but he does run a little bit, and he has some escapability. So it gives, you know, those that pass rush of USC, okay, let's get in the mindset of, hey, we got to stay in our lanes. We got to do everything right, not let, you know, not – Take up, uh, take off upfield too much, and let someone come through, and then be able to pick up uh, first downs with their legs and stuff like that. You know, those small things. That's what USC is going to be looking at. At least the coaching staff. Um, you know, going into this game is, you know, we should be able to win this game. So we need to be working on these certain aspects before we get into a back-to-back -back set with Washington State and Utah. You know, that can be very dangerous for USC. And I know you were at Corvallis and mentioned that one of the things that you definitely noticed that SC is trending to being the hated team again. All the Oregon State students, they wanted to beat USC, and you can argue they want to beat USC more than really any other opponent on the schedule. Everyone's been circling the USC game. A game like this, where a bad team is rolling into the Coliseum, a blowout only leads to that you know, being extrapolated even further, where you just become the hated team in the Pac-12. And when you're the hated team, when teams are rolling into your place, there is going to be a little bit of fear. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think another thing that we need to focus on, because I think we all agree, Arizona State, not a great football team, but another chance for USC to prove that they're just there to improve game to game, focus on the things that they need to fix, not based on the opponent that's lining up across from them. Uh, basically saying, just do not play down to your opponent. Obviously, USC has stuff to work on after the Oregon State game, especially on offense, and the defense can continue to improve. Don't let that stop just because you're going up against a Arizona State team. I don't know, RJ, if you share the same opinion, but I think that's something that USC needs to focus on. Well, yeah, I mean, to put it as succinctly as I ever put anything, because that's not my vibe. But um, right now, USC's got the 11th rated uh, schedule, strength of schedule out of 12 Pac-12 teams. They got the 81st rated strength of schedule total, which it's not USC's fault necessarily, but it just means their scores 
need to look like that's the schedule they've had, right? Like it should look like that. That's it should look like they've been playing those kind of teams because that's what those teams should look like when they play USC. So yeah, I mean, I think it it matters. It's not it's it's not style points for the sake of style points. It's about your level of play because the level of play, you know, you've got that shotgun. Already talked about it. That Washington State game is just screaming trap game, right? Home game, but it's a Pac-12 North team you're not going to get really rallied up for, and you know you've got Utah the very next week. Like, that's a trap game, right? That's a game you need to play well in. You're not just going to show up. And then you just have to be at your best the week after that, right? And again, the clock towards being at your best from two weeks doesn't start two weeks from now. It starts kind of now. Yeah, and Alan asked that question on YouTube. He says, everyone has Utah circled on the calendar, but isn't Wazoo setting up to be a trap game? Cougars have a good squad. They beat Wisconsin. Almost took Oregon down. Not almost took Oregon. They should have beat Oregon. They blew that one. So they cooed that one away. Um, but, you know, they showed that they can put up points for sure with Cameron Ward. He's made, you know, someone uh, on my plane, actually, on my flight back uh, to the East Coast, was at, was at the game in, uh, in, in Eugene seeing them, and he just shows me the highlight clips of Cameron Ward. He's like, I put this together on my phone uh, because he was so impressed with what Cameron Ward did. So shout out to that guy for, for giving me some some highlight clips. But, yeah, Cameron Ward's a guy that's only getting more comfortable in that offense as well. Remember, he's a transfer quarterback as well. So that's something that USC is going to have to prepare for. But you want to set the standard of, of, you know, you play to your level no matter what, and that's a sign of maturity. So that's a sign that, you know, especially after a game where you had to fight, you had to claw, you know, you had to scratch your way through in a place where it was a, a hostile environment. You know, it was the first hostile environment. I think, the, you know, Lincoln Riley kind of mentioned that, you know, on Monday on the Trojans live show that he was, they were surprised by it. He said they had asked other coaches like, hey, what's it like with the renovations and everything else? How's the sound? But it was definitely a different vibe with USC there than with anyone else there because, you know, it, it, the place was going crazy. It was going crazy an hour and a half before the game. The student section came in and packed out the bottom, you know, bottom uh, section of the bowl and was, was going wild the entire time, which got the USC players going back and forth. It was a great college football environment. Now, that's a very emotional game. You win at the very end. Now, how do you avoid a letdown? That's the big thing. The best teams can go from, okay, we had this high emotions, and now you don't drop down, you know, way down and, and you know, let a team hang around. So that's what I'm looking for in this game to see about USC is, hey, are they going to play to their ability, play to what they can do, or are the emotions of last week maybe looking forward to the next couple of weeks? Is that all going to you know factor in and suddenly it's just kind of a sluggish game? They're kind of sputtering on offense like they were last week, or can they get things rolling again? Can they feed the running backs? Can they open up some holes? Because they were, you know, Travis Dye had a monster game, but there were times when there was nothing there for the running backs. The offensive line just wasn't, you know, blocking everybody up front, even though they had some light boxes and stuff, because Oregon State wanted to drop everybody. They wanted to drop, you know, seven guys uh, as much as possible to put everybody in passing lanes to keep Caleb Williams from getting going. So now that that tapes out there on Caleb Williams, I want to see how he bounces back. You know, what's he going to do this week? Uh, you know, when Arizona State probably tries to do something similar where they just drop a bunch of guys in coverage and say, hey, can you beat us by dinking and dunking and by taking the, the short throw? 
you know, that's going to be the book on USC's offense until they can prove that, yeah, we'll just we'll run the ball down your throat. We'll take those short passes. We'll move the ball. So there's things to see that has USC improved week over week. That's what you're always looking for, especially at this point in the season. You know, when you get to this mid, middle third of the season, can you be making that progress week over week as you get in, get ready to go into that stretch run? And it's a big middle third of the season for USC because of the teams that are coming up on the schedule as well. Yeah, it really does feel like it's kind of just USC versus nameless opponent this week. And, and the big keys to victory are just like seeing USC improve. Like that's what SC fans want to see is not as much what is Arizona State going to do when they roll into the Coliseum, but can USC just continue to improve? But focusing in uh, maybe just a little bit on Arizona State, uh, of course you have to start with the head coaching position. Herm Edwards gets fired early in the year, almost Clay Helton-esque last year after a big home loss. Uh, and then they bring in Sean Aguano. He gets elevated to the interim head coach position. I believe he was the running backs coach from before. They've got Emory Jones, the Florida transfer at quarterback they've got some weapons around the offense um, but really this is a team that's just swirling in turmoil right now they've not had a very good start to the season there's a lot of things that have gone wrong around Arizona State uh, but we have mentioned though Arizona State is a team that has given USC a little bit of trouble in the past RJ when you look at this Arizona State roster the themes surrounding this team where do you want to start well I think it, it's really the most interesting thing and if you really just have to dig and find a reason why is Arizona State going to be excited about this game why are they pumped up why are they a threat in any way shape or form is there is an enormous amount of connected connection between this arizona state roster and this usc roster i think the most obvious straightforward one is max williams his brother is a sophomore db um who mason williams who not only is max williams his brother but also is anthony beaver's former high school teammate and there's a whole list like you the USC Game Notes put out a whole laundry list of connections like that. Um, I think Arizona State's got 36 Californians on their roster. A good number of that are Southern Californians. So you're on a field where these kids all really know each other. And so there's two things that, that happen in a situation like that. Number one, these Arizona State guys are going to be going through the motions of a lot of games. I don't think at least to start they're going to be doing that in this game. It's a homecoming for a lot of them and just personal pride, right? You want to look respectable in front of your family, in front of your friends, right? And the other aspect of that that I think is going to be really interesting is that brings a lot of chippiness. You know, when you see dudes that you've been hitting and competing against back through the high school days and maybe the game gets out of hand a little bit, things get chippy and USC can, cannot afford to lose discipline right both within the game and also for the long term again like you can't get suckered into that stuff if you're for usc you're playing for real stakes at this stage of the season arizona state's playing for none of those kind of stakes so now you're sitting there as an arizona state guy like let's see if i can trigger this guy let's see what i can do with this guy let's see what i can get away with against this guy and again it goes back to shotgun's point of if you are a mature team you play right through those things if you're not a mature team, you are susceptible to them, even though you are the far more talented and organized team at this point. And that's interesting because that's something we don't know about this team yet for USC is, hey, when someone tries to drag them in the mud, are they going to go? Are they going to say, hey, I'm taking my shirt off. Let's get in the mud. Or are they going to be like, nah, nah, bro, I ain't got time for that. I got more important stuff to do uh, because – there have been teams in USC's past that have done it both ways. 
And so which which will this team be going forward? So I, I think that's an interesting thing. But, uh, RJ, you talk about the connections. You talk about everything. The problem is this isn't going to be a game because the best players from Arizona State are USC's middle linebacker, a defensive lineman that's out for the season for Louisville, and an LSU's quarterback. So, you know, maybe if you want to throw in Johnny Wilson, the FSU transfer, who's had a monster game a couple weeks ago, you know, all their best players, it wasn't like they had 18 transfers and it was just guys that weren't getting playing time. It was their dudes on that team that said, I saw the writing on the wall. This is not going well with the investigation, with everything going on. They should have fired Herm Edwards a long time ago, similar to USC with Clay Helton. They should have fired him the year previous uh, and be able to get a head start on things. Worked out well for USC. We'll see how it ends up working out for Arizona State in the future. But because of that, this year has effectively just been become nothing. And it was very similar to what USC was last year. You know, once they after that big win for them against Washington State, USC just they weren't they they weren't a team that was going to put up the fight needed to be able to beat any quality teams last year. And I think that's similar with Arizona State this year because the talent is down. You know, that was the problem with USC last year. They just didn't have as much talent as they're used to having. So then you add in, you know, you have coaching changes, everything else, and everyone's not working in the same direction. You know, you're not going to be able to win those those competitive games. And that was USC last year. That's going to be Arizona State this year. They don't have the talent right now. They're going to have to recoup uh, and, and get back on the recruiting trail once they get a head coach. So uh, that's why I don't see this game being, uh, being in much of a game. But again, for USC, it's important to make sure it's not a game and go out there and take care of your business, both on the scoreboard, but then on the field with the maturity stuff, with not getting dragged into things, you know, all that type of stuff as well. Yeah, and sometimes when a, when a coach does get fired midseason, they bring in an interim. There is sometimes a little bit more juice in a program. The problem for Arizona State is that happened and they play at Utah and then at USC. So it's a tough schedule to come off uh, when you're bringing in an interim coach. Um, based on the Arizona State defense, of course, there's some familiar names. I feel like Merlin Robertson has been at Arizona State for 20 years now at this point. Uh, he's back. He's one of the leaders of an Arizona State defense that like, it, maybe they're following the same formula that Oregon State did, but I think they should probably be pretty scared of a revitalized USC offense that up to this point in the season has improved things that they've needed to game to game. I think that was probably a big piece of emphasis in practices week from Lincoln Riley is like, hey, we're supposed to be a much better offense than only scoring 17 points in a game. You're going up against ASU this week. It's time to go prove it. I think an interesting another interesting storyline is going to be what does this offense do uh, as far as just getting back to doing things right? Not necessarily that, hey, you get the explosive play, you get the touchdowns, but hey, are you doing your job the right way? Because the defense – Definitely has been improving each week with that. And the offense, there's been signs where just like things are out of sync. Things just aren't, you know, Caleb throwing the ball and it's a little wide. Those small things, can the offense get back to being on track and just be running smoothly? So I want to see that from the offense and see if they can do that. And then, you know, who is going to play? Can you keep Justin Dietrich out? Can you keep Travis Dial? Can you get him in there for a quarter or two quarters and say, hey, we're up by we're up 35 already at halftime. Let's get these guys that are banged up out of there and save the reps on their body because those two guys in particular have been dealing with some injuries for multiple weeks now. And, you know, we're really banged up at the end of the Oregon State game and come up with big plays, you know, at the end. Uh, but, you know, can you get some of those guys 
you know, that have been banged up but are so important to you that you can't really bench them and get somebody else in there full time, can you get them in there quickly, get the job done, and get them out of there so that you can save the wear and tear on their bodies? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I was talking talking with RJ and Chris yesterday that like this is a game where if you wanted to rest Travis Dye, it would be a possible good opportunity. Um, of course, he's been dealing with injury. We're not allowed to report on whether that's changed or not, and I, frankly, I don't think we even know. So uh, Travis Dye has had three straight 100-yard games. He's been some could argue the MVP for the Trojans offense so far, if you're strictly talking about value. He's been so clutch in coming up in big situations for the Trojans. But if we're expecting this to be a game that USC wins by a lot, your first string running back, when you have two, three, four guys that you want to use, you could. this could be an opportunity for guys like Travis Dye to sit out a little bit. Um, one guy that uncharacteristically sat out the entire game against Oregon State, we learned a little bit more about that yesterday and today, RJ, is Corey Foreman, the edge rusher. Um, it's been an interesting saga events for Corey all season. No snaps against Oregon State, and you know, Alex Grinch was kind of straight up with us yesterday saying just the the practice the week before it just didn't seem like he earned snaps in the game so he didn't end up playing against Oregon State I don't know what your take on that topic is but I thought it was just really interesting um that after Lincoln Riley said he improved and has been improving he doesn't play at all yeah I mean I think this staff has done a good job overall of being both candid and supportive with us in terms of talking about the players, but I also think with the players, I think you wouldn't see the buy-in that we've seen on this roster if that wasn't being if that wasn't happening behind closed doors. And the I think what you what you got from Alex Grinch yesterday was, you know, a little bit of it's the same conversation we've been having with Corey Foreman, but we're still having that conversation with him and about him. And at a certain point, you get tired of having that conversation. You know, I think we, whether it was last week's show or the weeks, the week before, we've all acknowledged what he brings to the table talent-wise. You know, he flashed in the Stanford game. You know, that was, you know, I think that clip, I don't know if Shotgun either posted it, retweeted it or whatever, but, you know, the clip of him just ragdolling Walter Rouse, the left tackle for Stanford, who, by the way, is amongst the top-graded tackles in the Pac-12. So that wasn't, you know a low caliber player necessarily that Corey Foreman did that to. And he's got film that shows things like that, but he doesn't have enough consistency still. And we said that at the end of last year, we said that in spring ball this year, we said it in training camp this year, and now we're four games into the season and we're still seeing it. And I think that's kind of where Alex Grinch just, Alex Grinch just cut to the quick on the on the commentary and didn't feel the need to kind of romanticize it and soap it up um and i just think that's where we are and again this is a young player shotgun i think pointed out he had his final year of high school football kind of thrown out the window and so there's no law or rule that says the light bulb isn't going to go on but it clearly hasn't at this point and i think that's one thing that is that is evident and i think that's what alex grinch made pretty clear yesterday and look, everyone's freaking out about him not playing uh, against uh, Oregon State, but it's not a game that he was going to get a bunch of reps anyways. You know, maybe what's the difference in him getting six reps like, you know, some guys like Damani Jackson and Solomon, Solomon Tuliala-Pupu, uh, you know, and a couple other guys were in a certain package and they were in there and that's it. USC did not rotate much in this game for one. You know, we saw no Jacoby Covington at the second cornerback spot. We saw no Latrell McCutcheon at the, the, at the nickelback spot. 
Um, you know, some of these spots that have been rotating, we saw Raylan go forth for one one series um, at the second linebacker spot beside Eric Gentry, where he's been rotating in usually every third series in the previous games. So this was a game where they were shrinking the rotations to begin with. So start there. But then also, what is Corey Foreman's strength? Pass rush. So Corey Foreman, you need to get them in third and long situations, and there weren't a ton of those. Corey Foreman's strength is not necessarily against the run, so he's not a guy that you're going to put in there a ton in run situations for them. That's not where you would want to use him if you had a special package or anything for him. And you had times where Solomon Bird was out covering running backs. One of the first plays where Oregon State passed the ball, Solomon Bird just took the running back and put him into the sideline, like just – Took him, just ran him all the way like he was like he was Elijah Vera Tucker blocking in high school when I saw him take a kid and just put him on the sideline with a block. That was Solomon Burr with a running back. So there were times when he was in coverage. That's not what you want Corey Foreman necessarily to be doing either. So this wasn't a game where he was going to get a ton of snaps to begin with. And so, you know, do you give him six snaps and say, hey, you, you, you know, keep on keeping on basically? Or maybe you try to send a message as, as a coaching staff to, hey, we need you to step up. We need you to do these things. You you got to imagine they are trying to get through to him, trying to find the right key, uh, you know, the right combination to unlock the 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 talent that there is there because we know what he is capable of. It's just getting that consistency, getting that work ethic to where he does it. And again, it doesn't happen for everybody at the same time. Look at Sierra Wright. Sierra Wright did not play at all last year. He played in a couple games early in the season. Dante Williams called him out multiple times for it. And what happened to Sierra Wright? Sierra Wright took it, took it like a champ, said, all right, I'm going to get better. And he was the guy coming into this fall that everyone was like, this guy has matured so much. This guy has matured so much. Now, is that going to happen for Corey Foreman? You know, did it have to happen at the same time as Sierra Wright? No, but will it happen during the season? Does it have to happen after the season? Does there have to be a transfer and someone else, you know, gets in his ear? I don't know the answer of when that's going to happen, but that's what you're waiting on if you're the coaching staff, and that's what you're seeking right now if you're the coaching staff is, hey, we know that we have a talented player. We know what he's capable of. How do we get him to that level at all times? And, hey, it, it takes it, – it, you can be you can be a nobody for three years and then a fourth year have a monster season and suddenly you're a big draft pick. That could happen for Corey Foreman. Do you want that to happen? No, you want to see him – produced earlier in his career because of what he's capable of and be a multi-year contributor for USC if you're the coaching staff. But I think someone brought up on the, our message boards that Aiden Hutchinson had like three and a half sacks in his career before his final season at Michigan. You know, Corey Foreman, I think, has one and a half from last season. He'll end up getting one or two this season. So there's your three and a half. So it, when does the light bulb come on? That's going to be the question. And it does he can the coaching staff at least get through to him enough to keep him on board. And it sounds like he's on board. He's saying all the right things when he's interviewed. He's posting the right things as far as social media. You know, he's posting clips of Stanley Taufu making a, a tackle for loss. Not necessarily, you know, whining and moaning that he didn't play, but putting out, hey, we got another W and he, with a clip of Stanley making a play. Like, those are the right things to be posting on your social media. Now, I, is he the one doing that as someone else pulling those strings? I don't know all that, but on the on the surface, he's saying all the right things, doing the right things. Now he's just got to consistently do it at practice. And if it takes a couple of games where the coaching staff berates him or doesn't play him or whatever, but it eventually happens, 
How much more important is that going to be down the stretch run for USC if that happens? Or, hey, suddenly by the Utah game, he's ready to go versus if they just played him a little bit to keep him happy against Oregon State and played him a little bit in this game to keep him happy. You know, sometimes you got to you'll get push somebody down to pick him back up in, in coaching. And, and so, you know, you're hoping that that's what's happening with Corey Foreman. You know, and he's not losing interest or anything just because of how talented he actually is and what he's capable of once he it finds that that skill level, that maturity to be a, a consistent uh, consistent effort guy. And I think for USC fans, it's probably 50-50 positive and negative. Of course, when Corey Foreman came over, one of the bigger recruits that USC's landed in a very long time, you obviously want him to be playing and be making an impact. But also, it shows that this coaching staff is not going to be one that just plays guys because they think they should be played like plays guys just because they're big recruits plays guys just because to play favorites but I mean clearly they want Corey Foreman to work and I mean Alex Trent was very clear about it when there was a follow-up question saying like so what does Corey have to do in practice to get better and he's like this isn't just a, a Corey situation of course Corey is the guy this time that just didn't play because of practice but like we held every single person in our program to the standard that like you have to practice if you want to play so yes this week it was Corey Foreman who didn't play but Alex Trent was very vocal about the fact that they hold every player to this standard and I think that's something that USC fans who have followed the Clay Helton era probably find to be pretty refreshing and it's also it's it's a message to the rest of the team you know look it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter where you came from doesn't matter what high school you are and what connections the coach has to the program who your mommy and daddy are it doesn't matter if we're not going if we have the number one player in the country and he's not putting in the effort, and we don't play him, you think we're going to play you because your mom and dad get mad? No, you, because you got a connection, your coach knows the coaching staff? No, get out there and do your work. And so sometimes when you're a, new, when you're a program, you're taking over a program, you got to send a message with you know the, the biggest, baddest dog on the field or the biggest, highest-rated recruit in the program. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, there's, there have been key stories for the Trojans this year where that has worked out. Solomon Bird uh, didn't play until he showed it in practice, and once he got out on the football field, he's just been a stalwart for the Trojans since then. He's right now their number one edge rusher. He's very much proved himself. Damani Jackson only got six snaps. Uh, from my perspective, it looked like he really did a lot with those six, and Lincoln Riley even shouted him out this week saying that like it's really good to have him back healthy. I would be willing to, to bet that this week he gets a lot more than six snaps, and we'll see if he can work and make better plays on those snaps and even on the offensive side like there's two different stories people want to complain about Gary Bryant getting moved to the scout team but Taj Washington was a player that many USC fans forgot about coming into the year he's had some pretty solid games I think it's just who's proving themselves in practices is the one that's going to play RJ do you have any takes on this topic I mean I think it's all been pretty well covered I think th there's a couple things to, to clarify like USC doesn't have a Corey Foreman problem right now if anything, Corey Foreman just has a Corey Foreman problem. He needs to figure it out for himself. The interesting thing to me is just because of that specific position, and this is something that we've asked at intervals since spring or since Eric Gentry arrived. You know, he is doing so much for them where he is, but he's kind of graduated, I think, or been elevated to that Tuli Tui Pelotu status where we love him at a certain spot. But we kind of love him where we're not getting production in other places. And it hasn't happened yet. But, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, Romello Heights now down with an injury, right? Your numbers are not good at that edge position. And I just kind of wonder how much rope, how many opportunities, 
you know, when it becomes a real must-have situation, do they give Eric Gentry a try out there? Do they move him a little bit just in the way that they kind of move Thule? I don't think they want to. I think in a perfect world, they, they don't move him at all because he's doing so well where he is, um, at least in their in their from their perspective. But, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, Corey Foreman, Romelo Height showed up, took the starting job. Romelo Height got hurt. Solomon Bird from, you know, to hear the coaches talk about it, the outskirts of Howard Jones Field leaps ahead and takes the job as the starter, right? At a certain point, you kind of just got to ask, like, you know, how, how many guys need to pass you before you start making a point of not letting that happen? Because I do, I do believe that as well as they've played without leaning on Corey Foreman, they're not going to reach their ceiling as a defense without him getting close to his ceiling. And shotgun, I think was it last week or the week before that you like stuck your claim and said Corey Foreman will be a first round player. I assume that even after the past couple of weeks and him not playing as Oregon State, like you still think he has that talent, correct? Yeah, I, I think he definitely has the talent, and I think it will eventually come together. You know, I've seen too many players in the past that are just a little immature when they get, get to college, and it takes them a little bit of time. Sometimes that takes hey a couple weeks of camp. Sometimes that takes a couple of years. Everyone's at their different pace and different level. I mean, some people don't mature until they're 25. I would include myself in that in that category. You know, it takes a while for some people. So I'm hoping that Corey Foreman comes sooner or later for him just because I want to see, you know, him be able to play to his ability and expectations. But, you know, you just got to wait and see what happens here. Uh, you know, you mentioned Damani Jackson. I wanted to go back to that real quick. I really like the way that they use Damani Jackson. This is his first opportunity, you know, with, with some players, you, you know, with Dwight Jackson, they put Anthony Beavers in here, and Anthony Beavers has been in these heavier packages. You know, USC basically used a true 4-3 defensive alignment for the first time this season uh, in this game, and they used Solomon Tulealapupu in this package. It was basically whenever they brought Jack Coletto in, Oregon State did as a fullback and used multiple tight ends. They were bringing in this sub package for USC. They brought in five or six different guys, and I like the fact that, with a true freshman like uh, like Demonte Jackson, hey, we're going to give you this set a number of plays in this one package. This is the looks you're looking for. Hey, these are the things they've run out of it. These are six to eight to ten plays at max that you're going to see. And just, hey, we want you to focus on that all week. We don't want you to focus on being the number two cornerback. You know, you're not going in. If if, uh, if Sierra Wright gets hurt, we're going with Jacoby Covington. We're not putting you into mind. Just letting you know now. I don't know if this is exactly how the conversation went, but I like that they, you know, just gave him a specific set of, of tasks and said, let's go get your first experience. And I thought he was fantastic as far as doing his job. You know, the first play is a pass that comes at him. It's in his own coverage. He comes up and makes the tackle. Do your job. The second snap for him is a third and two. He makes the tackle on Coletto, but it, it goes for a first down. But he's right where he needs to be, makes the tackle. You know, those type things. And then there was a play a little bit later where they try to run a play action and then sneak the tight end out, which is something Oregon State does really well, catches a lot of teams. Jackson was all over it. So these are the type of things that I really like. And this is something that USC tried to do with Corey Foreman last year of, hey, just focus on the pass rush. We're putting you in the third and long situations. We're not going to have you in the regular rotation all the time. But with some younger players, if you can just simplify things, especially to get their feet wet early and say, hey, we just want you to focus on this. 
you know, if you're a downhill safety like Anthony Beavers, we're going to focus on this package where you're coming downhill. We're not going to worry about you being the, the single high safety in this look or this look. We're going to focus on what you can do best. You know, and, and once you master that, then we'll start going to some other things. So that's one of the things I think that this uh, coaching staff has done well so far as far as not putting too much play on the plate of some of the young guys. And we've seen that with Raleigh Brown. A lot of people asked uh, or some people asked last week when Gary Bryant uh, announced he was going to um, redshirt, does that mean that Raleigh Brown will now go to the slot? No, I think you want to simplify things. Hey, just focus on being a running back. Later on, whether it be later on in his in the season or later on in his career, then we'll start integrating some more creative stuff where we move you around and do some different things like that. But that was one of the things I just wanted to point out because I thought it was really a, a smart way of the coaching staff, the way they used Damani Jackson, the way they've used some other young players so far this season. Yeah, and making that – like if you're able to go in on six snaps, all you have to do is make six plays. It seems like Damani did that, and it seems like that's something that could definitely build confidence week to week because he's still a young player growing in his career. Let's shift over to the USC offense. We've had a couple of comments in the chat asking Chuck about your comment uh, to Lincoln Riley today about some schematic uses of wide receivers at the running back position. Now, RJ, you said you've got some stats ideas and stats that would – prove maybe why USC is doing that. And I'm sure, Shotgun, you have ideas schematically of why they would do that. So maybe if you guys want to split it up and RJ, you talk statistically, Shotgun talks schematically. Like, why do you think USC has been using their slot receivers at the running back position? Well, I mean, I think just to take a step back and do just more of a macro thing, because there's been talk, you know, Shotgun asked about the the offensive line um, and Lincoln Riley talked about technique having to be better technique everywhere. I think he kind of was saying, you know, better blocking technique from the running backs, better from the tight ends, but it starts with the offensive line and it's not a chicken or egg debate with Caleb Williams and the offensive line. They both have to get better this week. Caleb Williams has faced um, pressure on 40.5% of his dropbacks. That is the most in the pac 12. Um, interestingly, the second most is chance Nolan. So it was really kind of a, battle last week of two guys who were getting people in their face with a pretty consistent basis. You know, the issue is that the pressure is affecting Caleb Williams very clearly. His completion percentage, his rating, um, they dip. And they dip for everyone, but they are dipping noticeably for him. Um, so it's kind of a both type thing. Like we've been praising the USC pass protection up until last week, but if you really dig into it, they need to level up a little bit. They need to do a better job of giving him a clean pocket. And then he needs to do a better job of not even the spectacular plays. Like a shotgun, I think, brought up in his article on the PFF grades. And as you do a little digging, you know, he was one of six, I want to say. Let me see. I got it right here. He was one of six on passes of zero yards in the game on Saturday. So those gimme balls, like the very week before he was nine of 10 there. So just those gimme balls, the ones that keep the offense moving, the, the smoke routes, the little, the little dump off, the swing passes, those things that keep a Lincoln Riley offense moving and on the field and set you up for the bigger stuff downfield. That's kind of where he noticeably fell short. And I think that if you're talking about a one week improvement, I think that's where he's got to get back on track because those are passes that in this offense we saw, like if you don't hit those passes, even this offense is vulnerable. Even this offense isn't just gonna overcome all of it, right? And then, you know, kind of the other thing, it's the other end of the spectrum for him too. He's throwing 
the fourth highest percentage of passes of 20 yards or more. So he's taking the fourth most deep shots, essentially, of any quarterback in the Pac-12, but his completion percentage on them is ninth in the Pac-12. So, you know, I think it's it's Lincoln Riley's answer, the it takes a village answer, where he kind of said, you know, you need this, you need that, you need this, you need that. It's coaching, it's playing, it's, it's all these. It's trite, but it's also accurate, right? It's all these things have to get back together for USC to start looking like they'd looked in the first three weeks of the, of the season. And so for me, like, I think that's where you start. I think the offensive line has got to step up in pass protection because the word's out now. Like, if you get in Caleb Williams's face, you're looking at a much different Caleb Williams than you are in another situation. And Arizona State, can they take advantage of that knowledge? We'll see. But certainly the other teams on the USC schedule can take advantage of it. So I think... To Shotgun's point about Demani Jackson, applies the same to Caleb Williams. Just do the job. Do the simple, the, the relatively simple part of the job, right? Hit those gimme passes. Keep the offense moving. I think that's the path to getting them back to a more recognizable form than what we saw last week. So let's look at the at the pressures that USC gave up. Um, the, the thing I was asking about with Lincoln Riley is that Nearly half their pressures were from running backs and tight ends. And those those guys have been doing a good job. You remember the the Travis Dye big block that really opened things up in that first game for for a deep throw down the field. Well, this game, I think it was Travis Dye gave up a couple pressures. Uh, Malcolm Epps gave up a couple. Austin Jones gave up a couple. Seven of the fifteen pressures that Oregon State was credited with for Pro Football Focus were were put on the running backs and tight ends. And that's something that I was, I was curious about there. The offensive line was okay. It wasn't great. Uh, but, you know, they're giving Caleb Williams time almost every time. Now they've got to clean some things up as far as just the offense of getting that flow back. That was one of the things that I thought was the, the most noticeable in this game. And maybe it was just the way that, you know, Oregon State was disguising their coverages. Maybe it was because they were doing a lot of drop zone coverage, you know, but – you got to be able to find those quick hitters a little bit more and get the offense flowing a little bit, which they did on that final drive. And you saw what happened with those two quick passes to Taj Washington, kind of get them going. They got to midfield and were able to, to go from there. But I, I think it starts with there. But, yeah, there are a lot of different things that factor into Caleb Williams' performance on, on Saturday. Um, and one of them is is just he missed some throws. You know, and that's that's the thing that you're most probably most concerned about is because there were a couple of throws there now, a couple of them was just, hey, his first throw was to Taj Washington on the left sideline. It was just a hair too tall. Then his next throw was to Brendan Rice, who's behind the cornerback, and he just puts too much on it. That one's a big play. That The Brendan Rice one, you got to make that completion. That's a big play there. Then his third throw uh, is or is the, the throw to Mario Williams on fourth down, and Mario Williams doesn't catch it. Now, suddenly, those things start to pile up, and on a young quarterback, that's what happens. You know, okay, I missed a couple throws. Now a guy doesn't catch a ball. Now I start getting my head a little bit. And those things add up and add up. But then he misses a throw, you know, they, before the missed field goal attempt. They, he has Taj Washington on an outbreaking route, and he just throws it too short. And that would have been a first down, if not a touchdown. So those type throws are the ones that you're a little bit concerned about. He's got to do a, a little bit better job of using the mechanics in the pocket. You know, sometimes he's getting a little bit out of his mechanics. He hasn't thrown well on the run so far this season. He hasn't been very accurate, um, which, you know, that's something that's a complete different debate. But he's keeping plays alive. He's doing a lot of positive things for the offense. So now you want to see him this week take that step forward. 
So that was, you know, I was asking about the protection and what they can do to protect him a little bit more when, you know, those running backs and tight ends just had struggled to keep some of those blocks. And that's where the backside pressures and stuff came from that ended up ended up in the, the couple of sacks that they ended up giving, giving up there. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Yeah, Anthony on YouTube says, I mean, could Oregon State just have played a great game? Like, yes, they had a very good game plan for how to combat the USC offense. But the, the way it works is if Oregon State has a good game plan against your offense, then you need to find out how to beat that game plan in case a, a team uses it in the future. So that's like, I think what we're looking for USC to do against Arizona State is like, yes, maybe Arizona State, if they tried this same plan, would not have the same success that Oregon State has. I mean, Oregon State might have one of the best secondaries in the Pac-12. Arizona State could very well have one of the worst. But you have to, to game plan and practice to improve against said game plan uh, that the other opponent might bring against you in case a Utah uses it down the line or a Washington if it makes this Pac-12 championship. Like those kind of teams that could use a similar strategy. Like you need to prove that you're able to beat it and also just learn how to beat it. I mean, I'm not concerned about Caleb Williams. I'm not concerned about Jordan Addison and Mario Williams, though Mario didn't have a great game against Oregon State. Um, I think the offense will return to form a little bit, but it's just something that, you know, we saw them play so well for three games, including some some times where they sputtered. They eventually improved and I think settled people down a little bit, but now you have a game where you struggle on offense. This is a good opportunity against Arizona State to, to rebound a little bit and put up some points. Maybe uh, after that, we can get to questions unless either of you guys have any more ideas. No, let's bring the, let's bring the questions up. All right. So well, we have a couple questions. You guys mentioned the other question that I asked Lincoln Riley. Uh, so we have a couple questions about it. I asked Lincoln Riley today. One of the things that I, I'm always intrigued by the nuances of offense, and I was really excited to kind of study Lincoln Riley's offense at USC and some of the different things. And you've seen some of the clips on YouTube and on Twitter that that people have done showing the differences with those screen games and how you know against Stanford you, you run the GT pool, the guard tackle pool. And then you run the screen off of it, and then you run the screen the other way off of it. Those are it's just fascinating to me. The way, you know, the way the offensive coaches kind of draw things up and what you're doing to disguise things. So I was kind of asking, they've moved their their slot wide receivers being Taj Washington and Mario Williams into the H back position a few times this season. This wasn't just something new against Oregon State. Uh, they did it a little bit more against Oregon State. And I asked just, you know, are they trying to to just keep that keep the same people on on the field, uh, keep the same defense on there, and not make a substitution, not bringing a tight end, uh, and, and be able to run there. Or are they just trying to hide those guys there a little bit and then run some stuff there? 
but Lincoln didn't want to, he didn't want to divulge any uh, offensive secrets there. And, you know, some people asked, you know, is that normal for a coach to have that type of response? And it's, it can go one of two ways. You know, I've talked with a lot of coaches that are, you know, that love to talk ball and want to, you know, want to explain things and other ones don't want to give away their secrets. You know, with, uh, you know, you look at Stanford running the slow mesh, they had no communication with Wake Forest prior to that because Dave Clawson has basically not allowed anyone into their practices not giving away any extra game tape because he doesn't want anyone else running what is their specialty right now because the more people that run it, then the easier it becomes to stop it because people are focused on it a little bit more throughout the season. So Lincoln Riley didn't want to talk about it. And that's, that may be a question that, you know, if I was back at practice, I ask after practice one-on-one uh, -on -one of myself just because I'm curious about these things. And I talked a lot with Graham Harrell throughout his time at USC with different things and Seth Dagey and just different guys throughout the – throughout the lineage of USC's coaches, just asking, okay, why'd you do this? Why'd you move this guy here? Were you looking for this with, with a certain thing? Just because I'm curious, for one, and to try to explain things to you guys a little bit more. So, you know, I, I didn't take it as a, you know, as a slap in the face or anything. You know, it wasn't, you know, super surprised that Lincoln Riley, who's uh, known as a little bit of a paranoid coach, all college football coaches are paranoid to an extent, but he, he wants to keep everything as, as tight as can be. And so when he didn't answer, I wasn't necessarily surprised by that. Yeah, I think definitely like some coaches don't want to divulge scheme. And I mean, Lincoln Riley is considered to be one of the, the smarter guys when it comes to scheme in college football. He doesn't want to share those secrets. Maybe that's just uh, what's keeping him at the top of his game. But we've got a question uh, from YouTube. How long is Caleb Williams holding onto the ball? It feels like he's often looking for deep routes rather than what's immediately available. I mean, RJ mentioned the fact that he is, he, he does take deep shots a lot of the time. The last couple games, Fresno State and Oregon State have made it um, a, a key to their game to not allow the deep shots. And that's when USC's struggled a little bit um but there were times in the Oregon State game where he didn't have to hold on very long to the ball for there are to be pressure in his face so I think at the back half of the first half of Fresno State game he was holding on to the ball a little too long um but against Oregon State there were a lot of times where their pressure was just kind of immediately right there yeah and you know it's also a function of what gets called you know a lot of what was working for USC in the first three games was reliant on him having time and waiting Right, A lot of the longer developing routes, deeper down the field and all the way across the field where you kind of wait out the secondary, you know they just can't cover for that extra click and it opens up some really big, really nice throws. You know, A lot of that is, it's all play dependent, right? We don't, we don't necessarily know on any given play what exactly got called or where the, where the, you know, where the emphasis was or, or who the first look was supposed to be. I think it's... You know, what, what we're seeing with him, and I think Shotgun bring it up, is it's he's not missing in one way, right? It's not everything is long or everything is short or he's holding on to the ball too long consistently. Mixed in are kind of all the different kinds of mistakes right now, and it's just adding up to a little bit of – it's just some kind of erratic play. It's just some unsettled quarterback play. And I think where you start to build back to what we saw is you start with those – shorter passes you start with those passes that are catch plant get rid of the ball and get rid of it where it's supposed to be and on time and i think you go back to that and you build yourself back up to the place where you're taking those deep shots you know i think in lincoln Riley's office it's kind of hard to say is the quarterback taking too long in any given play because sometimes lincoln riley has schemed that you do that that's kind of what he's waiting for you to be able to do because there's a big payoff when it works and sometimes it's just, you know, there's a payoff 
a back and forth between uh, you know those explosive plays and taking some risks. And Caleb Williams hasn't taken any risks. USC still has how many turnovers? I think that's a, a big fat zero. Um, but he hasn't necessarily taken some of those you know big throw type you know try to fit it between two defenders. And he's felt comfortable holding on the ball. Let me see if something else develops. And if not, then I can use my legs to, to pick up a couple yards. So, you know, and maybe that, that's a part of his development at some point that Lincoln Riley may say, hey, now it's time to cut it loose. You know, now it's time to try to fit it between that safety. Now, and you saw that on that final throw. That's a dangerous throw that he actually threw a little bit too far up the field. Um, then you maybe maybe have wanted you want a little bit further back shoulder on that one just so that he can catch that ball and kind of turn away from the contact of the safety. But because and I thought Max Brown did a great uh, breakdown of this on his, his uh, um, TikTok and Instagram. But because the safety opened up his hips to the field versus to the sideline, it gave you that extra tenth of a second to create that window, and Caleb Williams fired it. So when the game was on the line, he made a more impressive, more dangerous throw, uh, whereas you know earlier in the games, he's like, I'm not going to risk it. I'll take, I'll take what I can get with my legs, and I think that we can pick it up on the next play or whatnot. So you know, it's a little bit of give and take. If you, if you don't want any turnovers at all, which is amazing for USC still through four games and I have a turnover, but you're going to hold on the ball a little bit longer and not take some of those chances that some other quarterbacks might. Well, and Lincoln Riley, I think, proves you definitely right because he said this week, like, there ain't five guys in the country that can make the throw that Caleb made, which shows that, like, he has a very clear understanding of the kind of throws that Caleb Williams can make. And I think, yeah, maybe he has been on a tiny leash so far this season because they haven't pushed the ball too far downfield or into harm's way. And I think that's a big reason why Caleb hasn't thrown interception yet. USC still standing at zero turnovers. But it's pretty clear that Lincoln Riley knows the kind of throws he can make. But also, I mean, we mentioned this uh, on the Sunday show. Like, that was Caleb Williams' 11th start ever. Like, he's pretty much one year deep in college football. So maybe the training wheels are still a tiny bit on. And I talked with Makai Blackman after practice uh, the other day, and I asked him where he was for for that touchdown he's like oh I saw it and I was like oh no that's a pick and then it was a touchdown to Jordan Addison so I think uh, the DB and Makai Blackman thought that the Oregon State safety was going to come away with that one but let's go from one quarterback to another uh, Big T37 on YouTube saying question I remember Emory Jones being a mobile quarterback at Florida but outside of the first game I haven't seen it at ASU could we see more QB run plays and is SC prepared for that type of QB go for it RJ I mean I think to a certain extent, the only way to prepare for it is to see it. And I think Shotgun kind of scouted it out earlier. Amiri Jones is a guy who can do it. And to be honest with you, if you're Arizona State, you know, where is USC vulnerable? Where have they kind of struggled? They've struggled on first down this year as a defense. And they've struggled getting three and outs. So if you're talking about putting yourself in the best position possible. And, you know, if your only hope to be competitive, right, is to have some long drives, you, you, you're not going to go up and up and down the field with USC with the state of your program, right? So, you know, maybe they're running him early on possessions. Maybe they're running him a little bit on first down. Even if it gets you only five or six yards, that's you're downhill at that point in the down and distance, right? So I think it's all on the table in a sense. That's the one thing, right? It's a double-edged sword, you know, interim coach you're kind of a mess you don't you don't know what works you don't know what doesn't you don't really know but you've also got carte blanche to try whatever you feel like right so i think there's going to be that i i can't imagine 
that they're going to put the clamps on Emory Jones, especially because maybe not this season specifically, but running quarterbacks have been an issue for USC. And I think you make them stop that because honestly, I don't know that there's a lot of other things that they're bringing to the table that can really hurt you. I, I just want to see Eric Gentry chasing him. So I'm down for seeing Arizona State run the quarterback just to see what Eric Gentry does uh, in pursuit. I think to a certain point, too, what RJ said, like people often look at mobile quarterbacks and say that's a dual threat. You might look at Emory Jones, say he's a mobile quarterback, and he's not a dual threat because I'm not really sure how much of a threat he is as a passer. I remember watching him at, at Florida when I was watching like Kyle Pitts tape when he was coming out in the draft. It's like Emory Jones is not a very gifted thrower. He's only thrown three touchdowns on the season so far this year for Arizona State. So he might be a mobile quarterback, and Sean Aguano might try and use that considering Arizona State only rushed for six yards last week. But I definitely don't think he's a dual threat. Like I'm not sure that USC has to be worried about Emory Jones as a quarterback like they've maybe had to against Tanner McKee or Jay Kaner or even Chance Nolan, who all three of those guys, I think like we talk about the USC defense, but we fail to mention that, I mean, USC made all three of those QBs kind of look pedestrian. Of course, Hayner goes down in the second half, but USC has done a good job handling every quarterback that they've played so far. I think Emory Jones will probably be one more on that list. Uh, question from Oscar on YouTube. What do y'all think the Caleb media holdoff is about? We learned a little bit of that, uh, a little bit more about that today from from Lincoln Riley. I know, RJ, you're preparing to maybe write up a little bit on that, but you want to maybe just summarize what Lincoln said to us today? I mean, I wrote it up. It's out there. You can you can look it at the peristyle. And I think it's a thing where you don't need to make too much of this. This doesn't need to be blown up into a huge significant thing. It should also not be dismissed as nothing, right? Like, in my mind, you have a quarterback who you are very clearly showcasing, you are very clearly promoting, and who is one of the best players on your team, right? He had a categorically bad game and has yet to answer for it. And by answer for it, again, let's also just talk about what we're even talking about, right? Like three to four minutes of post game or four to five minutes in the middle of the week on a Wednesday. It's not like a grueling line of inquiry. It's not like a Senate congressional hearing where we're going to keep him up there for 18 hours and talk about just every bad mistake and every mistake. It's not a raking of the coals. It's just a little accountability thing. And as the quarterback of the team, you should be in front of that. And it doesn't need to be a huge mea culpa. You know, again, he doesn't need to cry and be miserable and be upset or whatever, you know. But it's a little conspicuous because the whole week, essentially, everyone else has been answering for him right? Everyone else, offensive linemen, running backs, defensive players, the coaches, Lincoln Riley on multiple occasions has talked about it was a struggle, but he had the answers when we really needed him to have the answers. And some version of that is really all that was required. So I, a month from now, are we even referencing this? I don't know. A week from now, are we even referencing this? I don't know. But when you talk about what they have established and what they've proven in terms of accountability and the way they want them, their players to be accountable and the culture that they're building, it's not necessarily aligned with what we've seen them build up until this point. And I think that's really the only thing to say about it. And it's not a huge thing, but it's not nothing either. Yeah, everything that RJ said, and let me add that he's a captain. He's the face of their NIL everything you know all these different brands out there um and you know it, it's not like the you know one of the things is just 
okay, what did you learn from it? We want to see what he learned from it. And, you know, that's the, the big thing. So, you know, if you're making everyone else speak for you, and this happened, this happened last year or after the game, after one game where the defense was not very good, and Todd Orlando, I asked for, for him to interview, and he said, no, well, I'll see you guys on Tuesday. I said, you're going to make all the other players talk about what just happened, but you're not going to. And so he realized that, and he was mad in the moment, but he said, let's do this. And it was only a minute, two minutes. You know, It was a super quick interview, but he realized that, hey, it's better for me as the leader of the defense to speak about this than forcing everyone else around to talk about what you think of what the defense did. What'd you think? What'd you think? So for Caleb, you know, and maybe he's not even, this is not a thought process of his at all, but if it, if he's, you know, looking at the big picture, you want to say, okay, do I want every single offensive lineman to have to answer, what'd you think of Caleb? What do you have to do? Um, or do you just want to go out and, you know, like, like RJ said, speak about it. And one of the things they can do, which I would hate that they do, but one of the cheap ways to do it is you say, oh, he's got to run in three minutes. We'll get three minutes in there, even though he normally talks for six or seven. You know, and you just you keep it really quick. Um, and, you know, there's different ways that they can go about it. But I think it's not the right message to send to everyone else when you you have this accountability in the, the program that, you know, we're just not going to make you – if you don't do well, we're going we're gonna to coddle you and take care of you. Now, maybe that's a good message for the players to think, hey, if I mess up, they got my back. There's different ways to look at this, and obviously from the media side, we want to see them speak just because we want to see what they, they've learned about it. Now, how, hey, Caleb will probably talk after the game on Saturday because he'll throw for 300 yards and five touchdowns. In the first half. But I would like to hear what, you know, if I was there, my questions would all be about last week. And he would be like, what about this week? What about this game? I'd be like, well, I didn't hear about what happened last week. That's what's more interesting at this point in his development as a quarterback. It's going to be important to see him bounce back but what went into the thought process? How did he go about it? Those are the, the things that I think are most interesting. And, I, you know, maybe I, I have a different perspective on it than, than some fans. But, uh, you know, I think that's what's really intriguing about this storyline for him bouncing back is, you know, he's had a little bit of struggles at, at, at Oklahoma at times. But this was a game where he just didn't play very well and he missed some throws. How does he go into getting things right uh, back on the right foot? That's what's going to be interesting uh, it, when he goes uh, playing the ASU as well. I think multiple things can be true. Lincoln Riley is completely right that Caleb Williams has been available a ton for the media. He's done even more than just talking with us after practice, like doing stuff for ESPN. Like he's had so many media gigs so far. Uh, he's gone far and above what regular college athletes would do for the media. That being said, I mean, you're the quarterback at USC. Like you're transferring from Oklahoma. You've got all these NIL deals. You're one of the biggest quarterbacks in college football. Like, yes, you've been talking more than most college players should have to, but that's also, you know, what you've signed up for. And it is also just a little bit weird. Like, yes, it could be true we had stuff going on because players sometimes can't make it due to academics. But this is not the first time Caleb Williams has been said to be available and then was not there that day. I mean, this is maybe the second or third time this has happened. And maybe it could be appointments that are all at the same time and practice runs late. But it is still just a little bit weird that especially after a bad game and his worst performance that we've seen so far from him, he was not available when when he was supposed to be. So that's just something that it, it multiple things can be true. I think Lincoln Riley is right, but again, at the same time, the optics of it with all the accountability talk in the program is just a little bit weird. And, and last thing on it, just this isn't the first time this has happened. Not not necessarily Caleb Williams, but Cody Kessler after games didn't want to talk, even though he was a captain. You know, uh, 
Drake London last year when they would lose, did not want to talk. So, you know, I put a little bit more emphasis. If you're a captain, then I feel like it's your responsibility because you've been elected by your teammates to be the voice of the team, to be the leader of the team. So, hey, you know, you're going to be the one, if we have a loss, then you might be the one that's talking. That's just part of it. You're the captain. You're the leader. So, you know, I put a little bit more emphasis on captains and, you know, take that responsibility a little bit uh, more serious there. But, you know, it's not the first time this has happened. It won't be the last time that a student athlete doesn't want to talk after a game. But usually there has been Tuesday or Wednesday rolls around. That person has been available. So we'll see what happens going forward. All right. Uh, there's one more good question that, I, that I've got here on YouTube. And then, Shuck, and I, I know you always say you definitely have uh, rapid-fire questions. So I'm not going to bother asking this time. But so Leonard on YouTube asks, what do you think or what's your attendance prediction for the game? I think you kind of have to go back and reference the last 7.30 p.m. game the Trojans played, which was just two weeks ago against Fresno State. That one came out to be 68,000, if I'm not mistaken. This one, I think you get a little bit less because you're not going to have the Fresno State fans traveling. It's less of an important game because of Arizona State. I think you're probably looking around the maybe 60 to 62,000 range would probably be my guess. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess I'm a little more optimistic because they're undefeated. You know, there's been and a very exciting win that they didn't get to see at the Coliseum because it was at Oregon State. I don't know, like you said, I don't know if it totally makes up for the loss of the traveling Fresno State fans, but I think there should be there should be some good numbers. You know, there are only X amount of home games in the season. You know, you wait all year. We wait through spring. We wait through the dog days of summer just to get to these games. You know, from a, from a fan point of view, you're really just going to burn it? You're just going to dismiss it? You know, the one thing I would be curious is there are not going to be 65,000 people there in the second half. That's one way to look at it. I am terrible with attendance figures. I notoriously don't pay attention to what's going on in the stands. When I'm on the field, I just kind of, you know, I get that mentality of zoning it out and focusing on the action. So You get tunnel vision. A little bit, yeah. Nice. I'll give it 162,000. 162,000, guys. I think that's the number. All right, well. It's a number, so (laughs) that's good. Uh, one thing that we do know is there's going to be a huge crop of USC recruits in attendance. So it, it's definitely clear that like, I mean, again, 60 to 62,000, I think is, is still a good number. I would assume like you're just, you're going to see good attendance again. Maybe it's not great attendance. Maybe you're not selling out the Coliseum quite yet, but if USC continues to win, you'll see more people at the Coliseum. I'm excited again to see that lights out introduction. Um, I was actually, I'm in a class with Damani Jackson. He sits right behind me and I asked him, you know, what do you think about the lights out? And he was like, that's fire. Like they, I think all the players really like it. The fans seem to like it. Chris and I standing there feeling the fire on our face. We liked it. Uh, so I think that was pretty cool. And you should continue to see some pretty good attendance at the Coliseum. Stay away from the flames, Jack. I will. All right, let's move into some rapid fire here. First, we got a basketball question. There was some big basketball news that happened today. Vince Uwachukwu, who was USC's top-rated freshman coming in, the center, five-star center. Um, I had known that he was not practicing. I was trying to follow up on it to, you know, as they started practice this week to get some information for the war room. And uh, Matt Norlander from CBS came out with a story today that where Vince actually had a cardiac instance uh an issue during a, a non non-formal practice this summer so he basically had a heart attack and so his status is unknown going forward now this is similar to the the forward from florida i'm blanking on his name kevante johnson i believe it was something like that johnson um who suffered something 
did not play again at Florida was, you know, the preseason SEC player of the year pick, I believe, a couple years ago. Had it had this situation and therefore, you know, didn't end up playing, but he transferred. I don't know if he's going to be able to play somewhere else. So that's a big question going forward. Uh, you know, our, our thoughts are with him, you know, just as he tries to get healthy and recovers from this, just a terrible situation. Um, for USC, they ended up bringing in uh, Miyagu, who's the, the Russian seven-footer. So, you know, maybe that was, you know, was that partly to help because of this? Uh, not necessarily sure on that, but definitely a big loss for USC just because they had high expectations for Iwuchukwu. And we'll see where he's at as the season progresses to see if he's able to to come back at any point, get back and, you know, get back to practicing. Because basically he's just standing around watching right now. So unfortunate situation for USC basketball uh, who started practice this week. And we'll see, uh, you know, as as things progress, where, where that situation ends up. But we had a couple of questions about that. So, you know, definitely a, a big loss for USC there. Alan wanted to know, and we mentioned this earlier, so real quick, everyone had Utah circled on the calendar, but isn't Wazoo setting up to be a trap game? The Cougars have a good squad. They beat Wisconsin, almost beat, uh, took Oregon down. Is this a, is, can a trap game be a home game? We kind of already talked about this question, but can a, tra- can a home game be a trap game? That's what I want to know from you guys. 100% yes. I think anything can be a trap game. That's what makes it a trap game. Is like It's a game you're like, <laughs> this isn't a trap game. Like That's exactly when the trap game is a thing. Yeah, two, two criteria for a trap game to me. It's the slot on the schedule, right? It's what's coming up after sets you up for that. And can that team actually threaten you? Can they beat you? And we don't know if they can beat them, but Washington State's a good team. Like USC cannot roll in with its C-minus game and expect a happy ending. So to me, yeah, it's a trap game. All right. Well, Alan also had a question. Is ASU a prime candidate for Relique Brown's breakout game? I'm not – that's the thing. It's like it, it kind of just depends on how much he plays. I think if you – after the Rice game, when they said it was just kind of a minor injury, you'd assume he'd be playing a lot more then, especially because that's the most touches he's gotten all season. He looked really, really good. Since then, even when we have seen him, it's, it hasn't been – it definitely doesn't look like he's at 100%. So I guess I'll go on the conservative side and say no. But, I mean, every time you get him on the field, he's so explosive that it very he very well could break out. Yeah, I mean, Lincoln Riley, if you think he's, you know, close-lipped about injuries and just even discussing philosophically what he thinks about scheme, if he's got something special cooked up for Relique Brown, he's not using it in the Arizona State game. (laughs) But every player is a breakout candidate in a blowout. That is true. Anyone who has not broken out, per se, is a breakout candidate in a game like this. It could be... Anthony Beavers having two picks or something. You never know. Any any backup could be be someone here. Uh, Tim wanted to know, for me, since Riley didn't answer my question, why do you think that Riley's lining up the slot guy at H-back? I think he does it you know, just to be able to hide that guy there sometimes. They've used Taj Washington in the Rice game. They put him there and then ran him across the formation like they do the tight end sometimes. Usually those guys are to block. Instead, they threw it to Taj Washington's had a little screen set up there. So sometimes they're just hiding the guys there. And they feel confident enough, I think, in Taj Washington and Mario Williams, even though they're small, they are feisty blockers that, hey, if we need them to block somebody on the edge right there, you know, a defensive lineman coming off the edge and just seal the backside, those two guys are, are capable of doing it. So I think that's why you can do that with those two guys. 
I think I think Mario Williams probably loves to block. From everything that we've seen from him on the field, like he likes to get get into it with the other team. Uh, trash talking against Fresno State, pulling mouth guards against Oregon State, and then swimming on the field after. I think he sees blocking as an excuse to kind of uh, make his mark on the other team. Uh, Big T, want to know what's the max distance you would feel good about Dennis Lynch kicking a field goal? He already has a couple misses this year, but st- I still think he has been doing okay. I mean, he only has that. He, that there's only That's the one good. miss. That's a good question. I don't think he's been tested. Two misses, I believe, from a from a big distance. I just think, you know, a lot of it is the circumstance, the situation, the field that he's kicking off of, where he's kicking off of. Um, but right now, I feel good about him from 45 in, and he has plenty of season left to prove to us that we should feel good beyond that. Yeah, we also don't get to watch a whole ton of kicking, so it, it's kind of it's it's kind of hard to tell. Um, and there's, there's such a difference between game and practice. Another thing that I feel like we haven't mentioned, even in the the Sunday show, is that Pac-12 Network mentioning that the field was, you know, it's not like 100% flat. Um, and they thought they mused that maybe Caleb Williams is affected by that. Maybe Dennis Lynch was affected by that. Like it could be a factor. Who knows at this point? But. I, I want you to note that the play-by-play guy talked about this, and Yogi Roth was kind of like, yeah, yeah, and didn't mention it again, basically. Yeah. Because these kids play on high school fields that have crowns growing up. It's not like it's a big deal. Hey, maybe it's a little bit unique at the Division One level from what they're used to, but it's not a huge thing that you, that is a huge adjustment that players have to make. I don't think that played any role in, in any of the, the issues that USC may or may not have had. That's my personal opinion, though. Uh, Dennis Lynch says, I think, I believe he said that he thinks he can make 60. So he feels comfortable going out to 60. So I'll give him 52. We'll go there. Uh, another special teams question was, why doesn't anyone ask Lincoln Riley how come they do not focus on special teams or getting a special teams coach? Well, we don't know if they focus on special teams other than the fact that he hasn't hired a special teams coach. Now he's got, uh, I think it's Ryan Daughtry uh, as the special teams coach who is a, a grad, as a, Analyst, I believe. I can't remember his exact title with USC, but he's one of the the non-paid coaches on, on the team or non-on-field staff. Um, so he handles the special teams and design of all the stuff there. I don't think the special teams has been horrible. It just hasn't been good. Yeah, and, Anybody? you know, just kind of a quick point. Like, it's kind of a whiplash from the regime that we just left, which was as special teams obsessed as any that I think I've ever seen. Clearly, that is not the viewpoint of this staff. Um, We don't get to watch practices, so we can't say conclusively. I'm pretty convicted they are not spending time on special teams in the way that they did in the Clay Helton era. And I also think... Yeah, like whoever has. But I also think that they're the number six team in the country, and they've realized that doing the other things really, really well leaves you in a place where special teams is something that you you don't ignore, you don't dismiss, but keep it in its place. Let's let's do these other things really, really well and focus on special teams. And the kick coverage was much better against Oregon State than in previous games. So there's definitely there was definitely an improvement there, especially in a game where we thought that that could be a, a big factor. Big hit by and Raven Goforth on one of those kickoffs. Raven Goforth and Clyde Moore had, had the big hit and then sling of the player. Um, they're kind of settling on their kickoff coverage unit. The first game, the first couple games, they switched players every single time, basically. 
now there's like five or six guys that are consistent there, and there's some guys switching in and out. So I think there's still kind of a trial run of who they think is is a good special teams player that can cover these kicks. So that's one of the things that's going into it. Um, Ulao Lau, I want to know, for Shaka, did it take all three games for the Pac-12 to figure out how to slow down Lincoln Riley's offense? No, I think it took all three games for some pieces to not perform to the ability that they have, including your quarterback, and that ends up making any offense not be as efficient as it has been previously. So I don't think it's necessarily everyone's figured it out yet. In one, uh, of, David the, had, in one of the toughest atmospheres they're going to face as well. Very interesting that 27,000 made such loud noise, but it was amazing. Again, I'll, I'll reference that again. Uh, David had a couple questions. One of them, I feel like not many receivers are getting the ball. This could lead to transfer portal like Gary Bryant. Do you see others transferring after the season or during the season? It's always a possibility, but USC's offense is spreading the ball around a lot more than it was last year. If you remember, Drake London was like 108% of the offense, basically. So... You know, the fact that Kyron Ware Hudson has had multiple catches this season, he's a backup. The fact that Taj Washington was your leading receiver and he's the number four receiver on the team. You know, Brendan Rice was a guy that they threw to for the potential game winning touchdown, the snap before the game winning touchdown. So, you know, I think they are spreading it around. Addison and Mario Williams are going to be your top two guys. And then from there, but I think C.J. Williams is a guy you'll see a little bit more as the season progresses. Maybe we'll see some more Kyle Ford. Uh, you know, they, they could potentially use some more guys. But the big thing is that they're spreading the ball around a pretty good amount, and they're using the running backs, throwing the tight ends a little bit. A lot of guys have catches right now. Seven, different, seven different guys caught passes in the Oregon State game, which is I, I would bet is almost probably low. a season low, actually, yeah. relative to – the other games the other quick thing i'll just say is that i think in this era especially with lincoln riley running the offense for usc and the talent that they're going to get year after year i kind of think we need to move to a neutral stance on transfers in the sense that it isn't always reflective of something bad on either the player or the program you stockpile as much talent as you possibly can you compete you see how it plays out and then people make choices based on what they think is best for them. I mean, I just think, get used to it. This is, this is, to a certain extent, what's going to happen in college football. It's what's going to happen at USC with the talent that Lincoln Riley attracts, especially in a room like the wide receiver room. I just would like to see us get to a place where it's this, it's this net neutral thing emotionally. Like, it's not, oh my God, was he thrown out? Was he not treated right? And, or is he selfish? Does he not care? Why doesn't he want to, you know, he's not a true this or whatever. I... I think that's what I would like to see moving forward because it's going to be more of the norm. RJ, that's never going to happen. This is the same as a commitment, decommitment. You know, it's not, hey, it's just a better fit or, hey, the coach left, so I think I'm a better fit over here. It's, that guy didn't want to compete. He couldn't get into our school. Oh, yeah. There's <laughs> always something. Yeah. Uh, David will also want to know, is Corey Foreman a bust? Is it too early to say? I feel like he, I feel that he is bought in with the program. I see him transferring your thoughts. Talked a bunch about Corey Foreman. Is he a bust? I would say, yes, it's definitely too early to say. So, no, he's not a bust at this point. I saw another one asking if he's undersized, too. And we've talked about this point multiple times since early in the offseason. Like, I mean, about players that are, you know, the biggest on the team. Like, Corey Foreman is a physical, like, he he's a He's a first-off-the-bus type of guy. Exactly. That's exactly. He's not undersized. Uh, it, it, at this point, it's got to be just with, with – 
play in practice. And I mean, we mentioned even last week when someone asked, does he have the talent to be, you know, a starter at NFL for center? Like, yes, he clearly has the talent. Is that going to happen on the football field? We'll see. I've got 5% battery, so we're going to two more questions here. Steve want to know, I don't know how to run or pass block, but is there a big difference between the two? The answer is yes. One of them you're going forward, one of them you're going backward. That's probably the, the most simplistic look at it. And then Ryan wanted to know, do you think Travis Dye has a chance to be an NFL running back? He runs hard, is tough, great leader, willing blocker, can catch the ball well, but doesn't have elite speed nor NFL size. I think, and we'll get your guys' thoughts on this too, but I think he's one of those guys that maybe doesn't get drafted, but then he just ends up in the league for like eight years. And you're like, where did this guy come from type of type? Because he just he does so many things well for you that you want him on your team. He's a great leader in the clubhouse, you know, all those type things. He does he's just a, a great person and great player uh, that does a ton of stuff well. So that's the type of player that you would want to have on your fifty three man somehow. Uh yeah, I think uphill climb for a conventional path, as I think you kind of just just laid out. Because I think in the question it's very accurate. We I think Jack and I were talking about this just, just the other day when we interviewed him, like standing next to him, he's not a huge guy. He really isn't. And it kind of makes what he does more impressive because he is an extremely tough guy. He's extremely competitive. He's all the things that Shotgun talked. He's clearly emerged as one of the big leaders on this team. And I'll just throw one quick stat um, at you guys about him that I think kind of speaks to his value and maybe what he might be able to do in the NFL. So far, he is 100% on converting carries third and fourth and short, which was a which was a big problem for USC historically. So that's not an easy thing to do, and that's not an easy role to play. He's delivering in that way for them, and you have to be a lot of good things to consistently deliver in those scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Travis Dye is a phenomenal college football running back. He's had a tremendous college career. He's very reliable, so I definitely can picture him having a role in some NFL team. Coaches are going to absolutely love him, just like the USC coaching staff does. His abilities, a pass block, get that yard on third and one, and also be a good first down runner. Is he going to be a star running back? Like, is he going to be a starter for any team? I doubt it. I mean, he's also already at a, at a decently old age for a running back. I think this is his fifth year in college. So those running backs tend to not be the guys that go and transcend the NFL, but he'll find a spot on some team and he, he'll provide value like we know Travis Dye can. All right. That's all I got, guys. Uh, make sure everyone is liking, subscribing, leaving all those favorable comments, all those type things that, that we love for you guys to do as well. I thought I thought you said uh, we don't listen, we don't read comments. I thought you said you can't can't read into the comments. You can't complain about you the don't comments. read into the comments, but that doesn't mean everyone else doesn't read the comments, Jack. Yeah, we want them to make the comments. We want there to be a discussion. Well, I've been vocal. I like the comments, so leave, make sure you're leaving the comments, uh, subscribing to whatever page you're on, and pack the Coliseum. It's going to be USC versus Arizona State, 7:30 p.m. this Saturday, and we'll be back here on next Thursday. We talked about Washington State already this week, but we'll be back here next Thursday, us three, to talk about Washington State. Anyways, thank you guys for listening to Tunnel Vision, a show presented by USCFootball.com. We will see you guys next week. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.